Do you have the empty read case blues? Well, luckily for you, Singin' Dog Double Reads is an online double read shop and one of the largest suppliers of high-quality and affordable professional and student reads for oboe and bassoon in the USA. Please visit us at www.singindog.com to see all of our products and fill up that read case. Hey guys, let me tell you something. Jenna Ingle loves the oboe. She's built her business on providing high-quality, handmade reads, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Jenna Ingle Reads, you get prompt communication, reads or cane handcrafted to your specifications, and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders and monthly read subscriptions are also welcome, and she's going to work with you to find the right combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that's right for you. Double Read Dish listeners can use the code DISH, that's all caps, for 10% off your first order at JenetIngle.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Hey, Galit, what's going on down in Mississippi? Ah, so much. Can I just tell you what we've been up to lately and what's coming up? Because I'm so excited about it. I would love to hear. Okay, warning. I'm just going to be name dropping for like a minute. So (laughs) if you don't want to hear that, just skip, skip, skip. (laughs) But I just want to like shout out all of the people who are coming down and giving recitals and master classes. My students are so nervous slash excited, but we had USM alumna slash Louisiana State University grad student Andrea Silverio come and give an incredible recital and master class. Um, she actually played the burial sequenza on her recital, and it was so fabulous. That's awesome, and I love the oboe sequenza. Yeah, it's really cool. I don't think it's as hard as the bassoon one. I don't think it is either. That's not shade, but I will say I much prefer it on... <laughs> Oboe to soprano sax. Well, for everything. <laughs> oh, snap. Who else did you so, have? We had Jennifer Case, who is the uh, instructor of oboe at U- University of Alabama Huntsville, slash second oboe in the Huntsville Symphony, slash second oboe in the Sarasota Opera. And she gave a great performance and masterclass, and we all learned so much. And then upcoming, we've got Thomas Nugent from the Pacific Arts Quintet coming down to give a performance. Um, actually, the USM Wind Quintet Category 5 is going to play with them. We're going to do the Steinmetz piece, the Dectet. Hmm. Yeah. And then Anna Pennington is coming to give a class and a little performance. And then we have Alex Klein coming on April 8th and 9th. So if you are in the area on April 8th, he's giving a recital and everything is free and open to the Republic. Uh, open to the Republic. Open to the Republic. <laughs> Only those loyal to the Republic may hear Alex Klein. <laughs> open to the public. So everyone is welcome. All master classes. He's giving a master class on Sunday and on Monday and giving a recital on Sunday. So everyone's welcome to come here 
him do his amazing thing. So we're just really excited, and I've made a whole chart for my students so everyone knows who's playing when so that they don't get too overwhelmed. (laughs) That's awesome. Oboe extravaganza in Hattiesburg. A serious extravaganza. Shout out to my students. They are taking this so much in stride. They are the coolest, and I really appreciate their patience with me. (laughs) Yes. So what are we dishing about today? Well, we did a call for listeners to submit their worst gigs ever. But before we start, do you have a worst gig ever? I have several. <laughs> um, but I think my worst gig or one of my worst gigs was in a church and the thermostat stopped working and it got really hot. It was a, we were doing Beethoven 7. It was a really well-attended concert. And the body heat and the old church and the Midwest Ugh. summer, um, I don't want to exaggerate what temperature it is, was in there, but, cause I don't actually remember, but it was like in large major rests, instrumentalists were fanning themselves with the sheet music type hot. <laughs> and, I remember at intermission, the conductor was like, intonation. And it was like, it's 500 degrees in here. Why are you talking to me about intonation? Like, I'm just trying to survive. We're all just trying to survive. The conditions are not perfect. We're doing our best. So, yes, that was a hot, bad, not great gig. What about you? (laughs) Well, all of my bad ones have been outdoors ones. I just can't. When you're too hot or too cold... It's like, I, I'm especially upset with the hot ones. <laughs> I don't know. I have a memory from when I was like, I must have been eight years old or something like that. Like way too old to have the kind of fit that I had. But we were in Israel for my cousin's um, like promotion ceremony in the army. And it was in the desert. And we had like, my family had rented this bus. I mean, the bus was air conditioned. So it was like good to go. And then we got outside side and I freaked out (laughs) and I would not stop freaking out until we got back in the bus and my mom was so mad so like this version of myself comes up every time (laughs) I'm at like a outdoor gig in the summertime and I just start like internally boiling (laughs) but probably the worst one was not even a paid gig. When I was in my master's degree, um, the UT Wind Ensemble did a tour of Europe, and the last concert was outside. I think it was in Spain, and I remember it was so funny because, like, I was just hanging out backstage before we were supposed to go on with my friend who played flute and she's like hey can I get a quick a and I was like sure so I gave her a little a but then apparently other people could hear me and they thought that they were late so people are like running on stage (laughs) thinking that the concert started without them and then everyone's like mad at me and I was like I didn't mean for that to happen (laughs) and then we get on stage it is so windy and the pages like everyone's music is blowing everywhere the conductor accidentally knife toss style threw his baton into the valves of somebody's horn (laughs) oh my gosh this is like national lampoon's european concert tour so 
funny. It was so funny. I was just, it was just like the epitome of schadenfreude. And I was just like, you are a professional. You will not laugh. This is not funny. You are not going to laugh. <laughs> it was like the hardest thing I've ever had to do. <laughs> is this a good transition to Bob's entry? Yes. Should I do Bob's would entry? Would you read it? I would love for you to read it because I just want to hear you read it in your voice. I think it'll be funnier. Okay. So Bob Evans sent this wonderful uh, story of his worst gig. The most memorably terrible thing that happened to me at a gig was about two years ago. An orchestra in my area was just starting up, so they were looking for venues and settled on an old church. Oh, my gosh. This is starting out just like mine. We get to the second movement of (laughs) Beethoven 7. That piece is cursed, I think. (laughs) During the concert, when out of nowhere, a absolutely massive wasp lands directly on my music and starts lazily crawling around. I am panicked. There's no escape scenario. (laughs) This wasp is going to fly directly into my face and I'm going to scream and throw my bassoon and that'll be the end of my career and or life. But no, the wasp is taunting me, lazily moseying around my music. That's when the dread hits me. I'm going to have a page turn. (laughs) I slowly reach up, grab a corner of the music, and in one quick movement, awkwardly slap at the music, throwing the wasp directly into the other bassoonist stand. That is the anti-shine theory right there. She muffles a shriek, and the wasp gathers its composure, we had none, and flies off. P.S. I cannot impress upon you how big this bug was. It was at least the size of my palm. It covered several lines of music at a time. Listen, Bob lives in the South. I do not think he's exaggerating. Well, and I love the second movement of Beethoven 7 is that amazing funeral march. So he's just like looking at the wasp and the funeral march is <laughs> What other stories did we get? Okay, this one is really funny. This is from Emmeline. I was playing bassoon in the band of my high school drama production, and I was put on a new long-term medication, but realized about three days before the show I was having a rash, which was because I was allergic to the medication. Mm -hmm. I was told beforehand not to stop taking it, and I couldn't get a hold of any of my doctors in order to get their permission to stop taking it. So Benadryl, a lot of Benadryl. But Benadryl makes me really sleepy. So I spent a four-day run of the show with my stand partner waking me up at my cues and sleeping in between runs. Oh, my gosh. Horrible. (laughs) You cannot deny a Benadryl nap. The narcoleptic bassoonist. (laughs) (laughs) The next one is from Lauren. And... Uh, well, first, she tried to just get away with, I had to climb out a window. And we were not letting her get away with that. No, sorry. So then she <laughs> says, well, it was sort of my first real gig. I'd done a couple of weddings before, but for family and friends. I was playing some background music at a party on violin, and they told me I could take a break, so I went to the restroom. When I tried to go out, the door wouldn't budge, so I ended up having to crawl out of the bathroom window. Went right back to playing after that. <laughs> <laughs> you, I if you were just like standing outside 
and like in view of that window and you just see a person <laughs> slide out. That's amazing. And then like their instrument comes out with them. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, um, just ignore me. Everything's okay. <laughs> we may want to get that door looked at though. That's my question is that is the bathroom now unusable because the door won't open? Not her like problem. Wedding nightmare. She had Pockbell to play. today's episode is brought to you in part by double or nothing reads you know them they're the company that's dedicated to providing excellent handmade oboe and bassoon reads to discriminating double read players of all ages and abilities and good news double or nothing reads has recently expanded to sell double read tools and supplies gift items and more this includes knives knife blades thread staples cane bags and resources for students Better yet, as authorized Fox and Yamaha dealers, they offer an extensive range of oboes and bassoons for all levels. Additionally, they sell quality used instruments on consignment. And if you're looking for private oboe lessons and can't find anyone nearby, Double or Nothing Reads offers oboe lessons via Skype. Visit their website, doubleornothingreads.com, for good quality and affordable read-making supplies and resources, lessons, instruments, and much more. Everyone knows that Genda Industries is known for their reed knives, sharpening, and overall amazing quality and service in the double reed world. But there is so much more going on at Genda Industries. Did you know you can get oboe and bassoon reeds from Genda Industries Artisan Mall? The Genda Industries Artisan Mall is like a farmer's market filled with talented local and regional reed makers selling their reeds. It's a great way to try out some new reeds from new makers. Who knows? One day they may be your reeds for sale. Add the code DRDGENDA, all caps, no spaces, at checkout and get 10% off any Genda reed knife, maintenance kit, reed knife sharpening book, cutting block, and reed tool roll. Visit them at www.gendaindustries.com. Oh, and they're more than just reed knives. We are so thrilled to welcome to the podcast William Winstead, Principal Bassoon of the Cincinnati Symphony and faculty at the Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music. Welcome. Thank you very much. I'm I am so pleased to be among your guests. We're so thrilled to have you. I'd love to start by asking, how did you start playing the bassoon? Um, I didn't start playing the bassoon until I was a sophomore in high school. And I'm pretty sure I was 13. But I had... um, interesting early life experience in that uh, it somewhat makes me believe in um, earlier lives, former lives, reincarnation. I just appeared on this planet this time playing the piano. My mother had um, studied the piano in the early part of her life, and she taught a flood of piano students in our living room. And apparently, at one day when I was not yet three, I 
volunteered to play the piece that one of her students was having a problem with. And I had been listening. I remember I listened to what they were doing, but I had never been one of those kids that climbed upon the bench and banged my fingers against the keys. And it was correct what I did. And my parents were freaked out at this and several other things that happened in that part of my youth, including I had since early speech uh, seemed to have another set of acquaintances, many of whom had names that were not heard of in the area of rural western Kentucky where I was born. Uh, one of the ones I remember in particular was a woman named Mrs. Clarden, and I've always known that Mrs. Clarden's name was spelled with a C and not with a K. So, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, this went on just, they, they thought they had produced a monster, I think, and um, I developed very quickly at playing the piano, and I got interested in actually being in the band because these were the only avenues that I knew existed there. There were no orchestras, and that was the only thing I knew that I could do that would be allowing me to branch out in playing music. I was very interested in every one of the arts that came through my acquaintance, including drawing and painting and ballet and everything like that. And so this went on and on and on to the exclusion of basically anything else. I was not interested in the regular male macho things like being outside fishing was like a boring, boring, boring thing to me. I wanted to be inside practicing and learning more about music and other things, artistic. And by the time I was um, in junior high, my mother had gone back to college in order to get more study so she could make more money as a school teacher. And she took a music appreciation course in which the teacher was telling them about interesting things, including uh, persons who possessed absolute pitch. And she said, well, my Billy can do that. <laughs> and he says, no. Uh, yes, she says, he says, would you bring him to the class? So that was at what is now Murray State University in western mm -hmm. Kentucky. And um, I went to the class. And the man who taught the class volunteered to teach me for free uh, clarinet lessons, which was his main instrument. And while I was being taught there every week, I found out lots of other things, including uh, the discovery of a unique, unique-sounding instrument that I had never heard of or seen before, Perhaps I'd read it somewhere, but I just skimmed over it, and that was it. That was the bassoon. 
And I was probably about 10. And I started my campaign with my parents that I had to have a bassoon. And they resisted, and they resisted, and they resisted. But eventually, as they always thank them so much, capitulated. And in addition to the organ and the accordion and the drums and the clarinet, I now had a bassoon. It arrived <laughs> hanging on the mailbox outside on the highway. And I brought it right in, and there was a reed in there, and I started playing it. And uh, that's how it started. They finally gave in to me when I was, I believe, 13. There you have it. <laughs> the origin story. <laughs> Could you talk to us about your educational training on the bassoon, like where you went to college and who you studied with? Sure. Um, by this time, I had been moved up to the man who was, the main clarinet teacher at Murray, and um, he also was primarily a bassoonist. So after, while I was studying the clarinet with him, I got my bassoon, and I started taking bassoon lessons and clarinet lessons from him. And he um, he recommended to my parents that I audition for Curtis Institute and Juilliard. And so <laughs> to think back and nostalgically remember my parents who were lovely people but not widely traveled at all, getting us in the car and driving us to New York and to Philadelphia area is just unbelievable to me at this point that they would do that for me, and um, one of the greatest blessings of my entire life. So we went to Curtis for the audition first, and the notice came in the mailbox again that I had been accepted, and Curtis was no charge. I didn't know, you know, I looked, I, so I canceled my audition at Juilliard because it was not free of charge. <laughs> and so, of course, there the teacher was Saul Schoenbach, who had retired just a couple of years earlier from the Philadelphia Orchestra. And that that began my education there. Up to that point, I had um, composed music uh, just ferociously. I mean, in the background <clears throat> with learning these instruments, you know, I was so enamored, infatuated with the woodwind instruments that I ordered catalogs and I would pore over the catalogs and study the keys of the oboe and study the keys of the flute. And I, I just couldn't get enough of it. And in high school, I sat in study hall and wrote symphonies and operas. And as a matter of fact, my first composition I wrote at age five, and I still have that thing. <laughs> it was a little song about the days are growing brighter. <laughs> so when I went to Curtis, I sort of had to put the composition stuff behind me because I was um, I was sort of behind. The other bassoonists had been 
educated one of them in Los Angeles and another one in New York City. And I was I was looking at some catching up to do. Um, I went to my first bassoon lesson with Schoenbach with the Saint-Saëns-Sonata and the Strauss Orchestral Studies and uh, something else that was in my mind about the most advanced thing that there was. And he said, uh, you can take that back home. We won't be using that for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about a devastating first lesson. <laughs> but <laughs> I did, and um, trying to continue your line of questioning about my education, I decided by my fourth year at Curtis that I would wow them all. You know how we, everybody, my students today, they want to put things on their recitals, especially when they're younger, that is very different, that nobody ever played this, and you know, and I think that's great. Uh, so I decided that my winner was going to be writing a composition for my my graduation recital, and I did that. And um, Schoenbach was absolutely, I mean, I never, th- I thought he was never going to stop bravoing and screaming and applauding Aww. at the recital. And he wanted me, he, he said, you know, Bill, you know, you you should focus on composition. He said, you can write music. You can write, you can make something that really lasts which rings through my head through my whole life because, you know, periodically I was always becoming more and more drawn to orchestral playing, orchestral playing, play the bassoon in an orchestra. And I'd still hear him in the background saying, you know, you can write something that will last. And um, now, you know, when I question students about do you know who Schoenbach was, do you know who Cheryl was, you know, once in a while I get a blank look already. Mm. And, um, of course, if you ask about a lesser composer (laughs) (laughs) such as me, I'm sure you get the same blank look today, not not (laughs) even 10 years from now. But anyway, that's beside the point. So it led me, though, (coughs) to taking a master's degree in composition, but there was another little side twist to that, too. At the year that I graduated from Curtis, there were only two bassoon teaching assistantships in the United States. One of them was at the University of West Virginia, and one was at the University of Arizona. And I don't know for sure. It might have been Arizona State. Um, I believe, actually, it was. Well... I chose to be interested in the one at West Virginia because it was closest to the to the East Coast, and that's where I had found my life, where I had found myself by leaving the rural nature of my upbringing in the big city on the East Coast. And so, um, as it turned out, Serendipity fell for me again because the dean of the music uh, school at the University of West Virginia was an army buddy of Schoenbach's. And he said, 
you know, this Winstead is interested in your teaching assistantship. And so the guy came to Philadelphia to a convention and listened to me play the bassoon in his hotel room. And he said, if you will take the teaching assistantship, um, we will see to it that you have your master's degree in one year. And at the end of that year, you will have a faculty position. Wow. And I go like, bingo, bingo. <laughs> that's just <laughs> because not only did I have something concrete to begin my career, but I was going to be able to escape the draft. And that meant the selective service, which was picking people uh, right and left and right and left to increase the number of troops because the Vietnamese war was looming in the future there. So I was safe with the deferment for that. And I did get my um, master's degree with a wonderful man who had moved to West Virginia University from Eastman. His name was Thomas Canning. And then that's that's it. I got to the point in uh, probably the mid-70s that I thought, oh, I'm going to have to go back to school and get a DMA. The hand is writing on the wall. The hand is writing on the wall. Where will I go? And... Uh, I had that just about figured out that I was going to have to take a year off and start because, you know, I was I was taking auditions in those days, but very sporadically because I was really doing well as a composer. And um, I would sort of forget about the fact that I needed to be taking auditions if I wanted to play in an orchestra. People would call me on the phone and say, Bill, aren't you coming to audition at Detroit? Oh, aren't you auditioning for Baltimore? Oh, oh, And so I guess the best way to put it is that I got lucky one more time and events twisted and turned and I interviewed at Florida State and the new dean about to start was a former bassoonist and he said, I want you, and we'll bring you in at the rank of full professor. What? So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And get this, get this, ladies. And three years toward tenure. (laughs) Four four years. So in November of my first semester, first quarter at FSU, I was applying for tenure. (laughs) So... I mean, I've had a, a bunch of very, very special angelic effects like that <laughs> that have made my career, that really have made them. Like I said, one of them was about corner, cornerstone of my parents who gave me anything I wanted when it had to do with music. And then there was that um, with with the job at West Virginia. There was that with a job at Florida State. And there was that actually with this job in the Cincinnati Symphony. There was another one at CCM where the dean there gave me way more than I even understood what he was giving me. But one of the most remarkable of those cornerstones was the one that Schoenbach gave me. And I often can't 
tell the story without tearing up. So get your Kleenexes out in case I start that for me. He only, as they still do, they only took four bassoons at Curtis. And the year I auditioned, there was one opening. And the student that I mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, who had studied in Los Angeles, had already gone to college. I'm not sure whether he had a bachelor's degree already, but he was several years older than me. And I guess Schoenbach felt like he could not not take this guy. And I guess he must have felt like he could not not take me. And so he went to the director of Curtis and said that he would resign if they didn't make a fifth spot for one year until the senior graduated for them to take me. You know something? I didn't know that for years. And when I found it out, I thought, God, you know, that's where my life really began as a musician was his perception and his generosity. He was known for that. He was he was the cornerstone of the director of Settlement Music School where still all the underprivileged, talented kids in Philadelphia have music taught, private lessons taught to them by, you know, some of the best musicians in the city. And uh, he was largely responsible for the formation of Settlement Music School. <laughs> the funniest thing about it, I would never have thought that from him. I mean, we were all so terrified of that man. He came off like he was so nasty and so mean. And my take on that today, I, I guess, is that he wanted to be sure that you could have a stiff back and you could put up with all kinds of trouble and disappointment and criticism and and negatives and everything else and still come through. I mean, eventually, he did not behave in that manner to any of us after we were out of the school situation. But that was that was the big one right there for me, the fact that he made that possible. Uh, interestingly enough, on the humorous side, he cut the lessons down to 45 minutes. <laughs> you know, he had five lessons at 45 minutes instead of four hours for four. <laughs> <laughs> so could you tell us about how you arrived at Cincinnati and, um, you know, your how, how you got to both the orchestra and the conservatory? Well, I was doing very well at Florida State. I mean, the job certainly panned out, and my relationship with the dean was very, very good. And so he made me, within a short period of time, the chairman of um, winds, brass, and percussion. And I think he saw to it that I received a um, an award. I can't remember. It seems like it was called the President's Award which gave me an extra 5000 bucks a year forever, which doesn't sound like that much these days, but in 19, early 80s, that was, that, was, that was pretty good. 
And um, we had a questionable situation with retirement that came up, and uh, an advisor said to me, do you do you see any other jobs that you would consider moving to, or would just about anything else be a sidestep from the position you have here at Florida State? And I could only come up with maybe Eastman, and um, I thought, you know, that's that's too far down the road, and I don't know if they would end up hiring somebody who didn't have any more connection with orchestral playing than I do. And so I decided in my mind that it would be okay to stay for the rest of my career at Florida State. And um, about that time, I'm trying to think how old I was. I must have been 40. And I don't know, 40 carries the midlife stigma, and I was trying to get a handle on that. And I thought, this is okay, but something was restless. And I heard that there was a audition for associate in Chicago, and I had been very close friends with Larry Combs, who was the principal clarinet. As a matter of fact, here we go, a side story again. As a matter of fact, he called me one time and he said, oh, oh, Bill, we're on tour, going on tour, and we're someplace, and I forget. He said, could could you get off tomorrow and come and play Shostakovich 9 with no rehearsal? <laughs> 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 oh, I said, of course, of course I can. I know I can. I know I can. <laughs> He said, well, I have to present this to the management. You know something, Gully and Jackie, I had never even played Shostakovich 9 in an orchestra. Oh, my God. I mean, I'd played the excerpts, but, you know, <laughs> the difference between playing the excerpt and having that experience, I was undaunted by anything like that. I thought I could do anything. So it never worked out, but thank God, now that I have played it a few times, thank God I did because I think I would have sunk. I would probably have sunk right there on the face of the planet. So anyway, I'm back to this restless bit, and I went to Chicago, and I auditioned, and I didn't, I didn't do anything. I, I don't think I even made the first cut. So I was pretty saddened by all that because I had put – I was beginning to put my eggs in the last basket with auditions, and I was just disappointed in the way it went. And um, Otto Eifert called sort of right at the end of that week and said, uh, the CSO here, this CSO, was going to have an audition for a temporary um, person for a year because he was going to explore what he might do when he retired from the orchestra, which parenthetically was he was going to teach full-time at CCM for a year and take a year off from the orchestra. Well, he'd already done that once, about two or three years before that, and Nancy Gores was the person who came from, I believe she was in Venezuela at that time, and she came and filled in with CSO for a year. And he said, um, I'm calling to inv invite you to an invited aud audition for this. 
So I had my excerpts practiced up for Chicago, and I thought, well, okay, I'll go do that. So I flew to Cincinnati, and I remember driving in the cab down to the, the city, down over the river to the city, and thinking, oh, my God, what an ugly little river town this is. And arriving at the hall, which was in the slummy neighborhood, and thinking, oh, my God, what am I doing here? But, you know, the magic of an audition, when I got in the room and I was practicing and when I went out on that stage to play, I wanted that job more than anything, mm-hmm. anything. And that was the beginning of it right there. They picked me, despite the fact I learned later from a colleague who was telling stories outside of class, despite the fact that the maestro at the time said he wouldn't have hired me like the committee wanted them to because I played I played the Tannhäuser excerpt, the one that is just the baseline. I, I didn't play it with enough emotion. I didn't play it musically enough. And the guy said, well, you know, that's the way he played it is the way you do it when you play it in the ensemble in this piece. But anyway, um, I got the job despite that. And when I left to go back to Cincinnati, I remember going on the gangplank to the plane, and I couldn't control myself. I was crying so hard. I just thought, damn it, it's over. And uh, I've got to be happy with what I've got. I've got to be happy with what I've got. So um, I hadn't been home any time before Oberlin called me and said, um, uh, Robert Moore, I believe was his name, was retiring, and they were inviting me to come and interview for the job. I didn't even know what was going on because I was so wrapped up in this business with the Cincinnati Symphony. And um, so I went and interviewed for that, and they offered me that job, and I took a long, long time to decide whether I wanted to move to Oberlin or whether I would have to live in Cleveland and sort of just feeling like something wasn't right about it. And, well, the phone rang and it was the Cincinnati Symphony saying, could you come back and sub this summer because there's going to be an audition for Otto's job at the end of the summer. And so I I couldn't believe it. I said, of course I will. And so I came back and subbed. And uh, I took the audition in July, and I had the job. Um, I, of course, told my wonderful dean at Florida State, his name incidentally is Robert Clinton, he became university president and things like that after leaving Florida State. But I said, you know, I will come back and teach as many of the students as I can because I didn't like leaving him out on a limb with nobody. So I flew to Tallahassee every week. The first week, first year I was in the orchestra here and um, enjoyed 
the fact that I was like a you know, cosmopolitan in the big time, you know, flying here and there and teaching and flying in an orchestra. Oh, my word. And I, I decided that after that year was over, I was not teaching at all. I had by that time told them at Oberlin that I knew that if I accepted the job there, and if I auditioned for the orchestra here and got the job, that I would take this. And I would hate to do something awful like that, but I would back out of my contract. So they actually hired um, Chuck Ollery on a one-year at Oberlin, and I came to Cincinnati and flew to Tallahassee. And the second year, they found that Chuck was not going to stay at Oberlin as they had hoped he would. And they called me and said, would you consider commuting to Oberlin? And I said, I will. And I did. <laughs> and so here I am. Talk about cosmopolitan, commuting to Oberlin to teach. They flew me up there. They gave me a rental car, put me in the hotel, paid my meals, I think probably all the faculty at Oberlin despised me because I was treated like, you know, I was treated so well. And then, um, again, a phone call, and it was the chairman of the winds here at CCM who said, um, Otto has decided he's not going to stay here any longer. He's going to retire completely and we'd like you to interview for the job. And I remember distinctly saying, oh, no, thanks, I've already got a full-time job. And they said, we'd like for you to interview anyway. So I started thinking about that, and uh, I had a deal at Oberlin where I could, oh, we could only have a certain number of students, the ones that I could teach in my commute, which was, go up on Sunday and teach all day Monday, which, of course, is the traditional orchestra day off, and come back home Monday night or Tuesday morning. A lot depended on airline flights and um, start orchestra rehearsals. So I was thinking, you know, I would do that maybe when I undertook it, maybe for five years, because I didn't think I could last at that forever. And then I would be eligible for um, making contributions to the Oberlin retirement plan. So um, th that way I could keep, you know, having something warranted up for a retirement income. But now it seems that if I were here and just drove up the street, that would be a lot more practical. So I did uh, say that I would accept the job if the, if the situation was right. And so the situation was tailored for me, one more angelic event by the current dean there where he gave me a contract where I only teach 10 students, which I knew from my experience at Oberlin already, was the maximum number of people that I could handle in addition to the orchestra and do a class and stuff like that. So that's 
geez, that's been 27 years ago. It doesn't seem quite possible. But all of these things that happened to me were just as one of my most beloved and admired colleagues um, said to me in the old days when I was complaining about the fact that I wanted to be asked to be one of the, quote, kind of like faculty people at Chautauqua, and he and his opera singing wife were faculty at Chautauqua, and I was not invited to do that, and I said, you know, what can I do to to get in there? His advice was, you know, if you beat the doors down trying to get something like that to happen, he said, I've seen Frances. That was his wife. She was an internationally known opera soprano. He said, I've seen her beat and beat and trying to get things to work out. And if they do, they're usually not too successful. And the most wonderful things that have ever happened to her is like the page turns and the situation unfolds. He said, you do have to be there when the door opens. But he said, and, you know, and I hope that's clear what he was meaning, because it is exactly what has happened to me in the best things that have happened to me in my life. You mentioned, um, you know, this opportunity that Saul Schoenbach created for you, and it seems like mentorship and pedagogy are kind of a a common thread. You know, so many of your students are so successful, and in a previous episode, Daryl Hale had talked specifically about how um, impactful and important you were in helping him rebuild his skills um, after his battle with lymphoma. Um, So could you talk to us a bit about, your approach as a mentor and teacher and how you build personal relationships in a way that helps your students thrive? I don't know until he mentioned that and you mentioned it um, that I'd ever thought any other way Hmm. about my students. Um, I, I didn't set out to become, quote, their mentor, but as you can hear, I have had that situation just magically unfold for me by people who wanted to help me, and um, that is what has always driven me at teaching, is that I want to help these people. I I think I know things that will help them. And so I I often encounter this question at auditions uh, or by prospective students writing me emails, which would take months to answer all the questions Mm -hmm. adequately for me, uh, asking me a question about, what is the prescribed form of study? <laughs> and I I don't have a formal prescribed form of study. I listen to someone play, and I have analyzed pretty much within less than five minutes what the needs are and where 
we should begin because you usually hear a number of strengths that are developed either through work and skill or just by serendipity. They're developed above other skills. <coughs> and those not so developed skills need to catch up, obviously, with the others. And that's where I begin. And, you know, I have certain uh, exercises and certain etudes and certain compositions and uh, repertoire um, in mind to enrich and to support the development of these things that I have perceived need to be um, improved. And I, I always sort of plan on giving that diagnosis to someone who is considering my teaching, my mentorship, I, I always lay that out for them so they know if any of that is scary because very often it is scary to think, oh, do I really want to tear my this and that all to shreds and start it over? Because a lot of times I think that's the problem in that it is very, very daunting to a teacher to think, uh, well, what will this person react like if I say, you know, what you're doing is not good from the foundation up and we need to sort of start over. Um, that's, that's so scary that the, the teacher often reacts in a way that is like, I can't, I can't, I can't do that. And so I see lots of people who have layers and layers of sort of artificial stuff built one on top of the next that is devised basically to cover up the fact that there's some basic skill from the ground floor that maybe needs to be reexamined. I like a person to know that. Well, you know, my, my take on these people is I care about them from the beginning. And I can psychologically tell you that uh I know the explanation for why I care this much about the feelings and the development and the and and all of that of people who come to me to study. It's because I didn't have that when I was up to past my teenage years. I was so allowed to be, I guess is one way as an only child, I was allowed to be the only thing on the face of the world. I mean, I, I didn't care anything about other people except my family. And then I found out that that was not a very good attitude, and I made a conscious effort to change my personality in that regard. I still have pretty high self-esteem, but I have an awful lot of regard for the feelings and thoughts and cares of others. And I think that puts me in a position where I just want to help. I'm not there to tear anybody up. or uh, And so my relationship with every single person is is different in, in consideration of their needs. Now, with Daryl, 
Daryl Hale, that who, whom you mentioned, he had auditioned for me, and he was on my, um, you know, um, acceptable and preferred list. And before it was time for him to actually come and enroll, he developed this medical problem. And I really know I was devastated to hear that about him, and it sort of knocked a hole in my class. But I wouldn't even ever have considered abandoning him until at least he had a chance to, well, look, and then turned around, and he, his treatment was successful. And then he came back to school, and he was kind of in the basket. And I was very patient with that, too. Of course he would be after what mm-hmm. he'd been through. Mm-hmm. And I am just absolutely overjoyed, you know, that it worked out for Daryl. I mean, there is no young man who deserves the good things that he's got any more than he does. And, yeah, you know, I'm just agree. very, very glad to be a part of it. I don't – I've I've – you know, very happy that he feels grateful to me, but I, I, there's no way I could have done it any other way. <laughs> I'm just very, very pleased for him. Well, that kind of another thing I wanted to ask about is your recent 75th birthday celebration concert, um, where well, well, yeah, so many of your past students came and you know put on this concert in your honor and. I wonder, you know, you have so many successful students, but it, it I would uh, guess that things kind of pop up. You know, so-and-so gets this job, and that's wonderful, and, and they kind of happen in uh, spaces and time. And then you get this opportunity where all at once, all together, you know, you get to look at a physical manifestation of a job well done. What was that experience like for you? Well... It was even more unbelievable than, uh, you, you know, you've got a great perception as to what that would do for an individual. But it was, it hit me in August like a bolt out of, what is that expression, the bolt out of the blue. I, I, I was absolutely, it just took my breath away. I never had any idea that these people even knew how damn old I am. <laughs> I was a little bit hurt by the fact they didn't think I was 65. They knew I wasn't 65. <laughs> but after I got over the shock of that, which took, frankly, a couple of days, I, um, I, 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 I never thought that any of them would ever think of doing anything like that for me, ever, ever, ever. I mean, I participated in the 60th birthday, no, the 65th celebration, I think maybe the 60th too, I'm not sure, of Saul Schoenbach. I I participated in that and his 75th and all that, but those were in the good old days, you know, and the fact that these, People not only wanted to do that, I I was just, I I just couldn't believe it that this was going to happen today to me. And beyond that, I, 
you know, I know every once in a while one of them will play a piece that I wrote or a piece that I transcribed, but I never thought of them as thinking of me as a composer that they would want to present a complete recital of my transcriptions and my compositions. And that double whammy was just enough to blow me away. I mean, I, I don't know that I will ever get over the impact of it. It, I hope not, because it was so wonderful. I mean, if you could have been there and seen it all, I was just, I was just, the performances were to every single one of them were so good. I had decided um, that <clears throat> I had decided that I didn't want it to be all bassoon. I mean, uh, frankly, Amy Pollard said to me at uh, one of the dinners we had when all that was going on. She said, "Have you written any other things?" <laughs> and that just—I mean, I, that's not funny to you, I imagine, but if you think back to what I said in the earlier years of my career that I focused a lot more on com composing than I did on music. I mean, I have I have written scads and scads and scads of music. Uh, uh, now uh, um, an adult symphony and, and um, sing, you know, lots of stuff that I wanted to have some of that stuff played on this recital because I don't think that listening to a whole program of just bassoon stuff is all that interesting to anybody except bassoonists and maybe not really even to them. <laughs> so um, a woman from uh, the University of Georgia um, named Martha Thomas, who is recording my piano sonata, which was written in 1970-something. No, maybe 69. It goes way back there. She's recording that next this this summer actually, and so she came and did a performance of it here, which is her approach to go and around and play something like that before she records it. And then I had some uh, vocal stuff on the, on the program as well, just so it had some you know variety. But every one of those performances was like the best one of the performances I've ever heard of those pieces. And it, it just, it was so perfect in every regard. I, I, I don't, you know, I wish so many others of my former students could have been there, but most of them heard about it through Facebook or something and, and contacted me later and said they sure wish they, they could have been there. And I wish both of you could, um, uh, golly, uh, Dwight Perry played two of the oboe impromptus that I wrote years ago for Dan Stolper. And uh, he picked the piece up a week before, and he played it as if he wrote it. I mean, wow. it was just absolutely blew me away. I didn't <laughs> coach it. I didn't hear it. He and the pianist were both so in tune with that music that it 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 was it was totally rewarding to me and i made a little t 
teary-eyed confession at the end of the recital that their performances had inspired me so much that if they found that much music to be made in what I have put on paper, it encourages me a lot to do what I have been planning to do now for the last many years, is to listen to the remarks that Schoenbach made to me all those years ago about, Bill, you can write music, it's something that you'll leave behind. Mm. That's what I want to do. And, you know, it, it like I'm trying to express, it encouraged me even more strongly to, yes, go about and do it. If these people can enjoy what they did, evidently, on that recital, I may, there's other people out there who can, too, at least if not now, sometime down the road. So it was, you know, it, it was sort of like the biggest thing that ever happened to me that evening. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm eternally grateful to all those people who participated. That is so awesome. beautiful. What is your best advice for students who aspire to have a career like yours? I think number one would be self-examine yourself and if you think there is anything else that holds a fairly equal interest to do as a career with being a musician, if there is such a thing, do that. Uh, you have to be, I believe, so mesmerized by what music is to you that to put up with the bumps and knocks, and believe me, they don't ever stop. I mean, despite the fact that many people like me get all of these fantastic things to talk about, that happened to them, they've also gotten some real bitter disappointments and some real hurtful comments and some real times when it's kind of difficult to go on. And for me, if you couldn't look at your career in the sense of, oh, my God, tomorrow I get to play Beethoven's second again, <laughs> if you can't say it is my honor, my privilege to be associated in this endeavor, it's it's risky that it would not be as fulfilling as it ought to be. And then a second advice, if you have answered that question successfully, yep, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go on with it is I have watched for these 60-plus years, I have watched the standard rise and rise and rise and rise again. This past year, I happened to play the um, Ligeti Violin Concerto, which probably a handful of listeners would know has an incredible number of high Fs and high Gs. Mm -hmm. 
Fortunately, no high F sharps, but the man looked like he had decided to write a bassoon part that would cause you to commit suicide. <laughs> it has technical, technical demands requiring you to produce those notes like in the speed of lightning. About the And there's places that there's a, there's one spot where it's, has to be double tongued with two high F's followed by two high F's, one quarter flat, then an E and then two E's quarter in the speed of. I mean, it's insanity. Um, the practice <laughs> angle is what I'm getting at. I thought when I saw that part, do you suppose down the road it is going to come to this in the bassoon world mm. that people are expected to play this? Right. You know, we ask, I don't think anybody has ever asked some of those tutti passages from Daphnis and Chloe or that one famous one in Firebird yet. But it wouldn't surprise me if next week somebody decides that's got to be played at the bassoon auditions. It gets it gets more and more and more advanced. It gets more and more demanding. And there is no way to compete with it unless you are able to find some way just to practice, 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 repeat, repeat, repeat until you get it right and until you build your self-confidence so that it comes out 90-something percent of the time just perfectly. And uh, that's it. I think that's it. Well, this has been a magical interview. Thank you so much for joining us on Double Read Dish. You are so very welcome. Thank you for having me here. So we hope you enjoyed that interview with William Winstead. Don't forget to check us out on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And don't forget that you can listen to us on iTunes, on Google Play, or on YouTube. On our next episode, we are very excited to welcome oboist Ramon Ortega Caro. Tune in next time.